Enrollment is dwindling, deficits are mounting, and more closures are looming. It is with that ominous prediction from higher education experts that Stephen Ide opens his deep dive into the state of private colleges in the fall 2018 issue of Education Next. Is a crisis on the horizon for the private nonprofit college sector? If so, what's to blame? And what would be the implications of a private sector shakeout for American higher education? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Stephen Ide, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of Private Colleges in Peril, which you can find on our website at educationnext.org. Stephen, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Marty. So as your article acknowledges, this isn't the first time that pundits have predicted doom for a number of American private colleges, yet private nonprofit institutions continue to enroll some 30% of four-year students in the U.S., more than three times the share of students attending private schools in K-12 education. So convince us that the troubles are real. Is this time truly different? Well, I think you begin with talking about the demographics. Um, it's understood, I think, across a wide variety of policy fronts in America that de looming demographic change are going to have we're um, going to mean big changes in, on, in terms of policy. You know, we, we know that for our entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, city planners who have relied on this uh, on stream of millennials to craft their revitalization strategy will probably someday have to talk about Plan B. But in the case of higher education, I think there's a sense in which the, the, the demographic changes have a more immediacy. College administrators, the higher education press, there's a lot of concern that um, the glooming decline of graduating high school seniors that we're going to see by the end of the 2020s um, is going to have big changes in terms of the structure of higher education, the institutions that draw from this pool. Um, I looked at um, the demographics, and you have 10 states in America who in around 2030 are going to have 20% or more fewer um, graduating high school seniors than they did around the Great Recession era of 2009-2010. So there seems, it seems like that's going to mean a real shakeout for the institutions who draw on that pool of applicants. Um, and so the future, I think, there's a good chance it's going to look different than the past in higher ed. And why would private nonprofit colleges be particularly affected by these demographic trends? Why wouldn't we just see a reduction in enrollment across the board? You seem particularly concerned with this unique sector of, of schools. Yeah, so if you break down the higher education sector in terms of um, public schools on the one hand and then elite private schools and then less selective private schools, it seems like that third cohort is going to be the one that have the greatest challenges. Let's say like seven to 800 institutions nationwide that enroll over 50% of their applicants. Um, they don't have the resources that the, you know, the, the Ivy League and then the, like the Williams and Amhersts have. Um, they are, they, um, and they don't have, they can't fall back on government support like the public institutions have. Um, so the elite schools and the public institutions, they may face their challenges, but um, it's the private, it's the, the less selective private ones who seem kind of out there more vulnerable by virtue of their independence. And it does seem as if there have been a number of headlines in the news over the past year or two, even a couple more since your article emerged, either documenting the closure or struggles of specific institutions or reporting on analyses of the financial 
status of these types of institutions, especially the less selective ones you're just talking about, right? Yes, and what's striking to me is that the kind of, you know, empirical things that are happening in terms of the schools that are actually closing, they're kind of lining up with these underlying forces that that analysis focus on. Like, for example, number of the closures or mergers have taken place in the Boston area. And the Boston area is a place which has a very high concentration of private schools. It's very interesting in America that in, it's, it tends to be in blue states where private schools dominate higher ed, whereas in like red states like Alabama, it's like everyone goes to a public school. But that's the situation we have. And in the Northeast, where you have a high concentration of private schools, um, um, it's also a place where you have relatively more, more dire in, uh, demographic trends. So the confluence of those two factors, demographics, high concentration of private schools, we are actually seeing that play out as we're seeing some of these schools um, have to result to closures and mergers. And it's interesting and perhaps telling, I guess, that we're seeing these schools struggle in the midst of a long economic expansion with the stock market approaching its longest bull run in history uh, by some metrics. I suppose that tells us that a uh, financial downturn could really place a lot of pressure and accelerate the pace of change. Right. I mean, uh, these are the good times in terms of um, you know, stock market returns and thus endowment assets. So um, there's a big concern as to what that's going to those financial pressures are going to mean um, when the next downturn does come. Now, one way in which colleges have responded to financial pressure in recent decades is by charging students less in tuition than it actually costs in order to educate them, or at least some students less. And the latest data on private colleges you report in the piece show that some 89% of students attending them receive at least some financial aid, and the average grant covers about half of their tuition. So is this phenomenon of tuition discounting uh, a rational response that helps schools survive, or is it ultimately unsustainable? Well, there, it's a it's a long-standing practice. It's been around for decades, really, and for a while it seems like it worked as the marketing strategy through this kind of push-pull effect of oh, this is high price tag, but look at how much we're going to give you on, in terms of a break on your on your tuition because we're so generous. Um, when you, it looked like for a while the net tuition revenues, the flows into these colleges, um, did work, even though those discount rate numbers kept going higher and higher. The share of the break of the, on the tuition kept going higher and higher. But more recent analyses have said that, no, it's, 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 not, um, it's not playing out uh, in the same way, that these, certainly the discount rates, the, num- the size of the break and the number of the incoming students who get a break, both of those are increasing, but the amount of net tuition revenue flowing in is not increasing in the same way, and that's a very troubling um, dynamic. Um, that's con- continuing to unfold. Yeah, it seems to me that it worked for a while to enable colleges to get as much money as they could from a given pool of interested students by charging more to those who could afford it. Uh, but now they seem to be needing to rely on more and more discounting in order to attract a sufficient number of students, and uh, it doesn't seem to be working out in the same way. No, um, and... Um uh, it's in it, colleges that are finding that discounting is not working in terms of ena- enabling them to hit their enrollment targets like they used to are really scrambling in terms of trying to figure out um, what kind of new techniques. You know, is it the case that you know you bring in one consultant and they say, well, the problem is you guys are 
seen as too different than most other schools. And you bring in another consultant, is you guys, the problem is you guys are seen as too much the same as all these other schools. For a small school um, who's already running a deficit, there's only so much innovation you can do, um, and, and it only so much of a marketing problem, only so much you can do in the way of new marketing. Um, big public institutions who are the big competitors against non-selected private schools, they can do far more. And in fact, despite their reputation of kind of these big lumbering bureaucracies, we're seeing a lot more kind of financial innovation um, and marketing innovation on the part of those public systems, um, which are and that's all posing a big, big threat to the to the um, to the private sector. And of course, we're also seeing some innovation for better or worse in funding of public schools with some states considering tuition-free higher education programs. Uh, I suppose it's a lot harder to compete against free uh, if you're a nonprofit private institution. Yes, the public institutions who, have, who are certainly under a lot of fiscal pressure as a result of the fiscal pressure that state governments have, are, are under and will continue to be under for the foreseeable future due to spending on things like public pensions and Medicaid, um, aid to um, public higher ed is down. However, that has not been to the benefit of these less selective private schools because it has stimulated things like, you know, more interest in honors college, more, more attempts to basically poach from that pool of kids who would be going to these um, private schools. Um, and then in a very dramatic fashion, um, <clears throat> you have New York State doing its four-year free tuition program for the SUNY system. Um, I mean, this, it's, you know, instead of reducing costs on... <laughs> Reducing the underlying cost drivers like Medicaid, public pension, you start up this other new program, but that's how New York State wants to do it. And certainly there is a lot of concern within, the pri within private colleges in New York State about what this program is going to mean for them in, in coming decades. So I think you make a good case in the article, and you've done a good job here of convincing us that this sector of the American higher education system is and will be under a lot of pressure. Um, so let's turn to how worried we should be about this development. What's distinctive about the kinds of institutions that are facing difficulty, and why should we be concerned if they were to become a much less significant uh, player in the higher ed marketplace? Right. Why should we care? Perfectly fair question. I mean, I... Um, we face a lot of challenges at the moment in America, and within, within education, there are many challenges that make claims on our attention. I mean, my interest in this topic is uh, rooted in a personal concern. I went to one of these less selective institutions, uh, at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, known for its great books um, program. I have a lot of pride in the school I went to. I think I benefited greatly from it, and I hope that it will be around in the future so that others may benefit from it. But as I research this topic, I try to, you know, expand beyond just my own kind of personal worries um, to think about, you know, what is this going to mean for, for the higher education system in general, and why might I, how can I convince other people um, that we should, we should pay attention to this? And I guess where I came down on it is we seem to be moving towards a higher education system that I don't think most of us would want. I think... If you think about the way that um, K-12 has developed over recent decades with more um, independent institutions, more privately operated institutions, charter schools, um, playing a bigger role in K-12, also just the local government landscape in America. You know, we want a variety of different places to live, um, and in, we want a variety, a diversity of choice, not just within large institutions, which is maybe what you could get from a big public school with various different programs, 
But um, between institutions, we want smaller schools. Um, that's a real, I think, more um, a deeper sense of choice than, than just being able to choose within large state systems. So I think most people don't look forward to a case in which, you know, either you can go to an elite school or if you can't go to that, you're just going to have to go to a big public system. But we seem to be inching closer to that um, with these demographic and financial forces um, exerting all this pressure that they are on these small private schools. Um, it's, um, I don't know how much we need to do in the way of policy, but, um, you know, it's not a future that I look forward to. And I don't think that most people would look forward to that future either. I, you know, throughout American history, these institutions have played a very important role. Their outcomes seem to be strong, in some cases stronger than public institutions or graduation rates and so forth. And so um, I think it'd be, um, it'd be really lamentable um, if that's the higher education that we wind up with, and it, which, is, which would be one that I think is not one that we would, we would prefer. Yeah, there's a particularly compelling line in your article where you characterize these schools as being not for everyone, but exactly the right thing for someone. Uh, and I think that highlights the uh, wide variety uh, that we see in the uh, private sector in, in higher education, and presumably some of that variety uh, would be lost. I was interested in the contrast you make with recent developments in K-12 education, noting the recent growth of charter schools and other choice initiatives that have offered families in some locales additional schooling options. But as I was thinking about it, I was actually struck more by the increasing similarity between the two sectors um, with higher education seemingly going the direction of where we've ended up in K-12. Um, you know, in K-12, private school enrollment has uh, fallen in, in recent decades, and it's particularly fallen among middle-class families. That's been laid out actually in another recent article uh, in Education Next. And uh, it seems to me that in K-12, to some extent, we've reached the, uh, the scenario that you just expressed concern about, where you have um, a private sector serving a relatively small, predominantly elite clientele and the remainder in, in the public sector. Yeah, that might be a better way to look at it. Um, certainly the loss of, you know, the just total collapse of parochial education um, in city neighborhoods has been uh, not at all an encouraging development. Um, they used to be vital institutions um, in so many ways. Um, and um, that is that may be the more um, accurate parallel with what's going on in, um, in private. And the, and the people who are, have watched that trend most carefully have been the ones who, in some cases, have been the most ambivalent about the growth of charter schools because they're saying, hey, you know, maybe if charter schools had not grown as robustly or if we had not felt so compelled to defend them for so many reasons, um, we might not have seen as much crowding out of parochial education in America. So, Stephen, what, if anything, is to be done? Uh, is this something that policymakers should be paying attention to, that they could address in any way? Is this something that funders, alums of these institutions should be seeking to address? Uh, let's say we accept your analysis and, and agree that this is cause for concern. What comes next? Well, I certainly would hope if we saw more philanthropic 
resources flowing to these less selective schools and just, you know, constantly propping up these other endowments, which by this point are reaching you know, $20, 30000000000 billion, um, that um, I don't know if philanthropy alone can save them. It would take a lot of resources to save a school that has, you know, only like a you know, $20, $30, 50000000 million endowment on the very high um, – demand on its um, on its budget I think you can it's one one thing we can do is just not put the brakes on things like free tuition for which among other reasons could mean um, 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 a less desirable higher education system um, and I although I don't explore this uh, carefully I did in my article I did this did come up in my research my interviewing people you know um, state governments do have to make a choice between how much revenue they want to send to um, to public schools and how much they want to provide in the way of grants that may be able to be used at other uh, nonprofit schools within their borders, um, and maybe more could be done along those lines to make sure that you have that that both the private and public sectors remain robust. My guest today has been Stephen Ide, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and the author of the article "Private Colleges in Peril," available now at EducationNext.org. Stephen, thanks for the article and for being part of the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.